New at five, after spending nearly three years behind bars, comedian Bill Cosby is out of prison tonight. Cosby joining his attorneys less than an hour ago as they talked about his release. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court overturning his sexual assault conviction. It's a decision that came down to a technicality. Judged, tried, convicted, and sentenced on sexual assault charges, famed comedian and actor Bill Cosby is walking free. A technicality of sorts got him out of prison. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania overturned his conviction. It only means that that first DA made a critical mistake in agreeing not to prosecute Cosby, and it's only fair that Cosby shouldn't be prosecuted when they told him they weren't gonna do it. Legal expert Paige Pate explains, in a split judgment, the court ruled that Cosby's due process rights were violated when he was charged and convicted. Cosby had previously made an agreement with prosecutors that he could not be charged in the very case that landed him in prison. There is effectively no other appeal. I believe he was released from prison today and he's not going back, at least not in Pennsylvania. In 2018, Cosby was sentenced to up to 10 years in prison for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constant at his home 14 years ago. Several other women accused the former actor of similar sexual assaults, but Cosby cannot be tried again in the state of Pennsylvania. It doesn't in any way mean that Bill Cosby did not commit the criminal acts he was charged with. It doesn't in any way undercut the credibility of the victims who came forward. This does not mean that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court doesn't believe them. One of the victims who came forward told NBC it feels like a gut punch. Hello, hello, welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm here with my co-host, that Texan with temerity, Brian Allen Hill, and hello. my little my little cuddly koala bear from down under, Dean Laffin. G'day. <laughs> so, you know, I say this every episode. I'm a casting director, probably best known for my work on Criminal Minds, where I cast FBI agents, detectives, lawyers, victims, and villains. And on a serious note, I've cast many, many times roles of victims of sexual assault, and not always, but most of the time, these characters are women. And these characters are women who could not go to law enforcement to report the crime. They had to hold their pain in secret. They had to endure their trauma in silence. And if they did go to the police, they were not believed by law enforcement. And their offenders, usually male characters, are men of power, of money, men of influence. And usually in these episodes, they have not been brought to justice. And I really wish that that was fiction. I wish that victims and offenders did not exist, but we know they do. And, you know, usually in a TV show, justice is served one way or the other by the end of the episode. The rapist is caught. His mask is shown to the world. It's ripped off and his true persona is revealed and they have to pay for their crimes. But we know, my friends, that that is really what the fiction is. So what am I talking about? Okay, you may have guessed. I'm talking about Bill Cosby, who was found guilty in 2018 of three counts of aggravated indecent assault after Andrea Constant and five other women testified that they had been drugged and sexually assaulted. He was convicted. He was labeled a sexually violent predator, and he was sentenced from three to 10 years in prison. And recently, as we all know, the appeals court ruled that his conviction should be overturned. So we know that. And on my true crime podcast with Jim Clemente and Laura Richards, I, I've covered the case top to bottom. I've interviewed his victims. We interviewed Tamara Green, and we've talked about it ad nauseum. Literally, it made me want to vomit. But I didn't really get a chance to just talk about the Cosby show. And particularly as I went down this rabbit hole, because I wanted to watch the episodes uh, with Lily Bernard, who was one of his victims, I wanted to watch the show again. And I went down this rabbit hole of watching episode after episode. And it just occurred to me, we always call Cosby America's dad, but it's not just his persona. It's the characters the show created around him that really, I think, were his beard. That's my opinion. And I want to talk about that. I want to talk about with people who are smarter than me, who are real thought warriors, to quote Van Latham, who I love. And I asked a couple of friends to join me today. So with me today is... Hi, my name's Aisha Tyler. You may know me from shows like Friends, Besides uh, Anyway, Archer, and Criminal Minds. And that's Thank how I know you. Sam Betty. I am an actor, an author, a director, and a podcaster. That's uh, right. Yeah. But, and I have a cocktail company called Courage and Stone, ready to drink cocktails that you can enjoy in the privacy of your own home. That's Hopefully. right. We're going to get more no, into that. Sense. That's going to be the fun part of the conversation. And yeah. I also have with me somebody super special to me. You are... 
Hey, I am Jarvis George. I am also actor, writer, producer. You may know me from Criminal Minds. Yes, it's Yay. Criminal Minds reunion up in here. And The um, Wire and NCIS and, the, and CSI. I mean, you've been in so right. much, Jarvis. Dave, AP Bio, you know, even Bold and the Beautiful, man. I, I, nice. I do the round. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's my spiel. I do not have uh, a cocktail wine, but I will be trying some of Aisha's soon enough. I will make that's sure. Right. I will that's, make sure. Right. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, I just want to open up the conversation. I have no idea what, how Aisha or Darvis feels or Dean and Brian feels about everything I've just said about how they feel about Cosby in general and the overturn of his conviction. I want to add, he was not found suddenly innocent. That is not the case. He was convicted with evidence and testimony and his own confession, but his conviction was overturned on a purely legal technicality. I just want to make that clear. I don't know. Jump in, guys. What What do you have to say? What do you think? I do think it's important to point out that he wasn't found innocent and that the charges weren't vacated. The result was vacated. This particular DA had made a deal with him that if he testified in, in this grand jury hearing that he would not be prosecuted under any you know, any of the information that was entered into the court record at that time. And then that guy left his job and the following DA looked at, you know, essentially his completely self-incriminating statement on, on the stand and said, wait a minute, this guy confessed to rape. We can't let this go. And I think in a lot of ways, that was the move. I don't, I don't know how anybody with a conscience would not have made that move. And that's why the verdict was, was vacated, right? Because th this previous DA made a promise that he wouldn't prosecute Bill Cosby for anything they say on the stand during that grand jury hearing. Right. And that, and that um, promise of immunity was never written down. It is completely just... It was just some kind of a verbal, like it was a handshake a verbal, deal. You say that Which is why the guy felt like the, the following, the, the, the subsequent yeah. DA felt like he could bring charges. I think that while that's incredibly disappointing, I think what's important here is that the DA that eventually brought charges felt like that, that he was duty bound and also conscience bound to do that. And I think that we have to look at the, the cadence and the direction culturally that we're going in terms of rape prosecution. I, I really hope it doesn't have a chilling effect on other rape victims coming forth because they feel as if justice wasn't served here. Because the fact of the matter is that guy had gone free for a very long time and then somebody had the stones to, to, to bring charges. And I, I think it also opens up the conversation, the cultural conversation about rape and about rape victims and about making sure that they feel safe enough to come forward and feel that they're going to be believed because that's the, the number one impediment to people speaking out about assault is a fear and a founded fear that they won't be taken seriously. I mean, what's so interesting is all the people that were like, well, if these women were raped, why didn't they come forward at the time? A lot of them did come forward at the time right. and they weren't believed. That's right. Hopefully that's changing culturally, whether for whatever reason that person doesn't get charged or doesn't get the, the, the sentence they deserve, what really needs to change is how we respond to rape victims, how they're treated and whether they're made to feel safe when they come forward about an assault. And if we can change that, then we're halfway towards changing rape culture, you know, not just in the United States, but everywhere. I feel like, I mean, the, the little button I'll put on all of this is, remember the, the Stanford rape victim who there were actual witnesses to the rape, two male witnesses to the rape, mm -hmm. one of whom who was, who was so upset by the assault that he could not stop crying when he was speaking to, like he was unintelligible, he was crying so hard. And there were still people that came forward and said that it was made up and it was consensual and a bunch of other things. And, and that we have, there are fundamental cultural changes that we need to make. And I guess that that DA bringing those charges after that sweetheart deal had been made pointed towards the fact that we're changing the way that we see assault and the way that we perceive victims and that we're going to pursue justice at any cost, you know? I mean, it was better that he was brought up on charges and exposed than not brought up at all, in my opinion, even if the sentencing was eventually thrown out. Yeah, and I, and I, and one other thing I wanna say is, you, you brought up something that they weren't believed. And that's kind of what I wanna to get to. Why weren't they believed? It wasn't just one, two, three, four, five He women. was America's dad. I mean, you pointed but, it out in the open, right? right he was right. America's dad. Right. I but I think, too, specifically, instead of the kind of broader topic, too, I mean, I think that there's an industry thing to be discussed as well. There's been a culture where power brokers have been able to get away with behavior, poor behavior for as long as there's been an industry. Right. And I, I know people, let's call them civilians, who will hear these stories about people being victimized and they'll go, well, if it was me, why didn't they mm -hmm. say anything? You know, if it was me, I wouldn't stand for this or that. And people don't understand that these people stand in between a person and their dreams. 
right? Like this is their dream job to do X, Y, or Z. And the cost of doing business, it's been this kind of implied contract. The cost of doing business for many women has been the casting couch or the assistant who works for Scott Rudin, right? Who's got to experience abuse every day, exceptional abuse. Like that's just the cost of doing business and people kind of internalize that. And we know that it is wrong, right? But it's been kind of the status quo for decades. And I think that Bill Cosby is a part of that. He was a power broker. He elevated himself by virtue of being America's dad to get away with this very poor behavior. Service. I was listening to what Aisha and Brian were saying. There's so much. Like, I was like, oh, I want to comment on that. I want to comment on that. First of all, yeah, he did it. He did all of it. And that's something that needs to be emphasized every time we talk about this. When he was released, my wife and I talked about it. And my wife's a, an attorney. And so she said, uh, one thing that people don't really focus on in American society is that the legal system is predicated so much on a type of bureaucracy. You know, things have to be done in a certain way. They have to be filed a certain way, these motions, and people can use that to their advantage, you know, stringing court cases along and things of that nature. But that deal was part of a bureaucratic process that was not adhered to and led to him being released. To Aisha's point, that does not mean he did not do it. That does, mean, does not mean he did not violate those women over decades and that other people, both around him and as an industry, were complicit. To Brian's point, there's a lot of money connected to the Cosby train, not just from him as an individual, but licensing of his shows, the content, the IP that he has created, mm -hmm. the branding. There's a lot of people that stand to lose out, that stood to lose out from what Cosby was doing. That's a financial point. The social point, which is larger than the entertainment industry, but it, it speaks to how, in my opinion, how we view sexual assault towards anyone, but especially women. People say it's not that big a deal. Eh, it's just a natural order of things. It's just guys being guys. And, you know, we all heard locker room talk. Nah, nah, no, that's a crime. That's a crime of violation. And unfortunately, so many people in the industry that when these crimes were reported, as long as it didn't happen to them, like producers, agents, network studio heads, as long as it the wasn't actresses, them or the their actresses, children, the, the actress agents, you know, because we're not mm -hmm. just talking about Cosby at that point, we're talking about Harvey Weinstein, you know, those crimes were reported oftentimes and people said, yeah, but it's a hundred million dollar movie. I could lose my job. So now that I stand to be impacted by you coming out, I'm going to advise you to keep quiet or I'm going to actively do something to leverage you to keep quiet. So as disgusting as that is, that is also something we need to acknowledge and address that there is this idea of when women come forward about sexual assault, where we place the actual currents on the hierarchy of things that are horrible and actionable and what we do about it. And unfortunately we put it at such a low esteem, it goes away. It goes away oftentimes. We get a slap on the wrist, the, the Stanford rapist behind a dumpster. Oh, it might impact his college career. Impact his college career? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. raped someone, raped her behind a dumpster. It's not just a rape, but it's all of the ancillary facts of that occurrence that if this were a robbery of a 7-Eleven and they said, oh, he took the night manager out behind the store and beat him savagely. We would have said, oh my God, that is horrible. That is awful. For the viciousness of your crime, I'm tacking on another 10 years because you're a vile individual. Mm -hmm. Raped her behind a dumpster? <sighs> I don't know, man. you got a good career. You might be the next Michael Phelps in the Olympics. We're going to let you off with a warning. Don't ever do that again, young man. That's the thing that a, an arrest and a conviction of a Cosby smacks people in the face because as Aisha said and you alluded to in the beginning, he's America's dad. This wasn't the guy that people in America or in America, but people associate with not just criminal activity, but criminal violation. You know, there are people that we will go, yes, he's that kind or she's that kind. That's what they do. He's the guy that we wished were our dad. And when that happens, we go, oh, it's that gut punch. Now you start looking at my children. Hopefully, hopefully people think about it in that 
what if it was me? If more people thought of if it was me, the conversation happens and the attitudes change. I fully appreciate the point that Brian made about it being the industry. But I would argue that it's American rape culture generally, because, I, I, I you know, I, yeah, I, I think we're agree. just oh, yeah. one industry like it's happening in corporate America. It's happening in meatpacking plants. It's a culture here of people in power and using their power to get what they want from people who are disempowered. And I think that the casting couch dynamic happens everywhere. You know, it happens in C-suite offices. It happens more with a foreman and a worker. God, I remember this story about this woman who was I feel like she was working on an, in an oil refinery in Canada, and it was just like constant sexual abuse and assault from her peers, not even from anybody above her. I agree that when these prominent people are outed, it hopefully has a chilling effect on the, the rapists and not on the people that come forward. That's what we're hoping. You know, I think it's mostly women, but I, I actually was just thinking about Brian Singer, you know, the people that have come forward and accused him of sexual assault and sexual intimidation. You know, so it's not just women, it's also men, um, but it's really people in positions of power, leveraging their power over people that are less powerful than they are. I want to get get to this, what you were saying about America's dad. I think we should not underestimate the power of grooming that is not even related to his monetary power and giving people jobs. The grooming that he did to America as America's dad, but more with someone I want to get into because I've been watching episode after episode, the iconic female characters, the Claire, the Denise, the Vanessa, the Rudy that he put around him groomed us too. Because it became impossible for us to think that his character's interaction with Claire, who is the mom that we want, she's powerful, she's wise, she's sexy, she's calm, she's funny, she's a lawyer. Creating that iconic woman that we really hadn't seen before busting through stereotypes is super powerful and having him in her orbit. You know, Denise, who didn't want to be Denise, right? She's fashion forward. She's beautiful. She's cool. And you see him interacting with her. And then there's Rudy, who is precocious, but not obnoxious. There are an episode where she talks about being afraid of not having big enough breasts to her father. And he talks to her about that. And then Vanessa, who is like the prototype of this science nerd that we hadn't even really seen before. Hi there, listeners. You know, we love putting the pod together, and we certainly hope that you enjoy hearing from us, but we would love to hear from you. How do we do this, you say? Well, if you visit our website, killercastingpod.com, you'll see a widget there for a little service called SpeakPipe, and you can record a message and send it to us as an audio file. So whether it's a question about an episode we've already done, maybe you've got a suggestion about a topic or a film or a series that we could jump into, we would love to hear from you, and you can be on the pod. We'll hear from you soon. Bye. He created all of these incredible archetypes that blasted through stereotype. And I think that protected him even more than anything else, right? Because how could he have these, I know it's all on TV, but these relationships, these women who love him, and it makes us feel safe with him, whether we're five or 85, we feel safe with him. That's a interesting because when when you asked me to come on and you were describing what we we're going to be talking about, I went back and started thinking about the Cosby Show. And my understanding is that the original iteration, the original pilot, was not what we know. Cliff was a plumber, and 
the wife, I don't even know if her name was Claire in it. He was a limousine driver. He was supposed to be a limousine driver. You know, but very extremely blue collar, which was like, ironically, it was like Tyler Perry before Tyler Perry. That idea of this black aesthetic put on television that is still steeped in in, in a lower middle class or blue collar attitude, right? The Hollywood lore is that Camille said, uh-uh, you're not going to put this image out here of Black life or, or the Black family unit. You're going to put out here something that is more aspirational. Not even aspirational, but that actually does exist. Black lawyers, Black doctors, or what have you, and a family unit that is not fractured. So I started to think about it, and I don't know if it was a purposeful, because I don't know Bill Cosby. I've never met him. I'm not inside his head. I don't know if it was a purposeful, let me, let me hide in plain sight. It just may have been a perfect storm of this is what he personally engaged in, but this is a a good business model, you know, because if you took the color of those characters away, you had family ties. You essentially had this suburban middle class to upper middle class, well-off family who was just happy. Life was pretty good. I do want to point out just really quickly as we're thinking about it, that like a lot of these rapes occurred before the Cosby show. Right. He was already hiding behind this identity before the show happened. And so rather than it be like he created a persona for himself that then was a beard, I I feel like that beard already existed when he was a touring comic, when he was the pudding pop guy. Like he had been cultivating that kind of like soft parental identity for a long time. I think one of the stories was he was like cruising Santa Monica boardwalk for teenage girls when he was still kind of, you know, oh, yeah, he was sure. still like the guy who had the Cosby kids. Right. I, you know, I hate to make these parallels, but yeah, I, I'm not going to do that because that's unfair. Good. Make um, the parallel. Well, you know, I was going to say, let's say a priest who's been accused of sexual mm-hmm. assault of minors being moved to an orphanage or moved to a Catholic school where they're creating this persona of friendly welcoming to young people that is not a beard, it's a tool. It's not a disguise, it's a lever that they are actively using to attract and capture their victims. And so it's my I day guess job, it's, it's, there's my day job, and then it facilitates me being able to do X, Y, Z. So it puts me ne- right next right. to the victims, right, right. next to right next to my prey. I think the point you were making was perfect. I just wanted to remind, I think he was, he'd been doing this for a very, very long time. Yes, absolutely. He was a touring comedian and incredibly popular and powerful. And I think saw that that power gave him something, gave him, you know, some, a weapon, a cudgel he could use against his victims. I was also thinking about, you know, you were saying like he created these female characters and, you know, were they his beard or, or why? I can't think of the psychological term, but I was thinking about Donald Sterling, the guy who owned the Clippers and was like this insane racist and caught on tape saying all this really racist stuff, but also was like, I, I'm not a racist. I donated all this money to these like charitable organizations. And this is like the psychologist was saying like that you can engage in these compensatory behaviors. So you're not creating these female characters to protect yourself. You're trying to overcompensate for the evil that you're doing behind the scenes by advancing, you know, uh, you know, strong female characters or strong female issues in the public eye. And to piggyback what you're saying, uh, God, I love being around women. People who are smart because then they say good things and you have good <laughs> ideas too. That's why Aisha's here. Not, not, right? not. Whenever I want to say something smart, I'm just going to call Aisha. Tell me what to say. Tell me what to say. <laughs> I'm available. <laughs> right? To her point, the psychology of being able to equivocate what they're doing, it's not as bad as. Did I beat them? Did I take them behind a the dumpster? No. I just slipped her a little drink. We all do a little drugs and things happen, you know, but I'm still a good guy because like she said, Donald Sterling, I have black players. Therefore I have black friends. I have women on my show. Nothing happened to them. And the, the, the greatest example of how bullshit that logic is, is when I hear people say, yeah. And Jeffrey Dahmer had neighbors that he did not eat. That, <laughs> right. Like get it together. That doesn't make him not a fucking cannibal. I'm so glad that you said that because it really just clarified for me what it was I was feeling. This overcompensation, even in the episodes, the the woman is always right and she's the smartest one in the room and the men are these Neanderthals who have this backwards thinking while at the same time, he is treating women the age of Lisa Bonet and younger like garbage. 
Mm-hmm. As complicated mm-hmm. as the trial is, the crime is actually very simple. He met them, he drugged them, he raped them. And mm-hmm. sometimes he met them as, you know, models coming in to, and actresses to audition for him. Sometimes they were businesswomen. Every archetype on his show, I would say, except for Rudy, he tried to do something with. Obviously, when you're watching the show, you're just cringing when he's touching anybody. It's an old school line too. Like I can help you in your career. That's what, I mean, that was the point I was making earlier. Like, you know, in specific area of expertise or, or future employment here, right. I can help you in this law firm. I can help you at this brokerage. I can help you on this television show. I mean, that's the oldest line in the book. And that was what he was doing to all of these women. You know, let me help you cultivate your modeling career, your acting career, whatever it was, your writing career. To what you guys had said earlier, the depth of the depravity is not just the sexual assault. It's, how you do it. Cause now you're talking about, yeah, I get off on that, that part, mm. the drugging part, oh, the control, the, the control. I mean, he's, a, he's a sociopath too. Like the argument that like Bill Cosby could get anybody he wanted, why wouldn't he drug women? It's just such a non-starter. The guy's a sociopath. He wanted to control these women and he didn't want them to be able to recount later what had happened. Right. It really was like, I'm going to make sure that these women can't come back and ruin my reputation and tell people who I really am. If I have an affair, that gets sticky. That gets messy. My wife finds out. But I can drug these women. They won't even remember it. Do you don't want that to happen. Don't do it. I don't well, know. Yeah, don't be I'm a, a rapist, fucking simple yeah, guy, so right? Don't, don't do <laughs> rape people. Yeah, exactly. You know, that, that argument that somehow because, you know, because he was famous, he could have sex with anybody he wanted is, is a reason. I mean, he, he was he's a sociopath. But that even goes back to the conversations that I've had with my wife and her friends, not just about Bill Cosby, but just in general about sexual assault. And, and they said, when we talk about sexual assault, we always, uh, we, the pejorative we saying, well, you know, what could the woman have done differently? Why don't you fucking teach your, your 100%. men. 100%. Stop raving. Not to, right. Stop doing, stop raving. This mm-hmm. is what you do. And at some point I have a son, two and a half and weird thoughts come in my head. And I think, what will be the age that I can have conversations with him about certain behaviors that he is going to see in the world? Mm-hmm. And he may not express to me, but to himself, he might think that that's a good idea. That's a good fucking mm-hmm. idea. So I just pull out of the one day and say, hey, son, let's talk about sexual assault. Maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe you should treat women X kind of way. But as adults, for some reason, we put the onus on women. Don't dress that way. Don't go to the hotel room. And it's even worse when after the fact, we hear the stories where people warned you. Don't go to Harvey Weinstein's hotel room. Don't go to Bill Cosby's dressing room. What the fuck? Why is Bill Cosby still have a dressing room? Why, why is this still <laughs> yeah. going on? The, well, the onus is still put on the women instead of him. The, their agents enabled him too. The women's yeah. agents. I mean, he had a pipeline through some agencies. So why wouldn't they trust their agent? Just to tag that, I think that's really salient. With Weinstein, everybody that worked with him were enabling these things, and they were actually performing that Ghislaine Maxwell uh, function, mm. which is that a woman would come and maybe she would be a little apprehensive about meeting Harvey Weinstein at night in his hotel room, but a female assistant would walk her in the room and deposit her there. And so she felt like, well, if this woman is here, this is an endorsement that this is a safe context. These other women were tacitly saying this is safe. It's going to be okay. Well, and also, too, you have this body of people who will come forward and say, well, Bill Cosby can have or insert name can have any woman they want. Why would he do this? You know, why Mm -hmm. would he drug women when he doesn't have to? Right. And it's like, well, that's part of the thing. That's what that's the the thrill of it. It's the thrill of enacting the action and getting away with it. And I mean, I know this has been brought up before, but it was fucking in plain sight. He's got a bit about the Spanish fly. Yeah, he got yeah, a whole five, yeah, ten minute bit about like celebrating the Spanish fly. I mean, mm-hmm. I owned the tape. I just watched know? a Cosby episode where he has this secret barbecue sauce. And at the end of the episode, everybody who has the barbecue sauce, they were fighting before. And now they're all lovey-dovey and ready to get it. I mean, well, you went and did the research. You went back. <laughs> I watched. I, I sat there and watched and watched. I still remember the, the, the birthday episodes in the Garden Cortrell. So those, that, those are the episodes that stick in my head. Dean, Dean, come on in here, Mr. Australia. What is the impact of Bill Cosby in Australia? I'm just curious. Uh, it's interesting when Aisha said that it's an American rape culture. It's a lot more than that because it's the same here. And victims are blamed and they're disbelieved. We had a rash of attacks, even rapes and murders in Melbourne a few years ago. And one of them was a woman 
a comedian, a local comedian, walking home short distance from the CBD to an inner city suburb, and she was raped and murdered. And the immediate reaction was, what was she doing walking home at two o'clock in the morning by herself? That's just insane. Why would you do that? As opposed to, as Jarvis, I think it was you just said before, just stop raping, right? Mm -hmm. And then there wouldn't be a problem. Mm -hmm. So it's not just an American problem. It's definitely here. And his impact was global as well. So he wasn't just America's dad. He was everyone's dad. He was on broadcast TV here in Australia. It was a massively rating show in Australia. It was as big as all of those other shows of that era when television, certainly here, there were only three channels. We didn't have cable, so we had seven, nine, and ten. Right. And and it was like, okay, we had MASH and we had the Brady Bunch and we had the Cosby show. And so his impact was huge, but it goes even more than that because my first memories of him were me in the mid seventies as a young teenager, my parents loved records, uh, vinyl records, and they played music and they played a lot of comedy LPs Mm -hmm. and not least of all, probably the most comedy uh, albums they had that they played were Bill Cosby. So my first taste of him was listening to his voice and him sketching these, you know, amazing landscapes of comedy that you would listen to. And they were hilarious. And he was lovable even then, let alone when he became Cliff Huxtable. So for me, when this first started to come out, everyone in Australia is saying, what, Bill Cosby? I'm not that Bill Cosby. You know, the the disbelief was the same, I guess, as it was there. And Understanding now, having listened to Lisa's podcast and uh, on RCP, and we know the story, it sickens me more than anything that that he's knowingly constructing such a defense and using it against us to try and get us to disbelieve that these women did it. And of course, his persona is inviting to these women. I mean, it's the ultimate betrayal. It's it's worse. I, I think you know, it's it's worse than the not worse than the drugging, but it. The whole package is just vomit-inducing. I can't believe that someone would be that depraved to put out such a positive image and then use that to draw in his victims. As you said, Aisha, he's a sociopath. And for the fact that he's now had this thing vacated and he's out, it's just a slap in the face. And there's just nothing good about this. You see, I am not serving Dr. Huxtable, okay? Okay. That's the kind of thing that goes on in a restaurant. Now, I'm going to bring him a cup of coffee, just like he brought me a cup of coffee this morning. And that, young man, is what marriage is made of. It is give and take 50-50. And if you don't get it together and drop these macho attitudes, you are never going to have anybody bringing you anything, anywhere, anyplace, anytime, ever. Hey, folks, if you're enjoying this podcast, feel free to give us a review. Big thumbs up in your listening app of choice. Plus, if you know someone else who'd like the show, send them a link because sharing is caring, right? Now, back to the show. He's a pretty classic sociopath, actually. And the reason why it's so startling to us is because of who he was in terms of his position in society. But I'm working on a movie about the Catholic Church scandal in Ireland. And I'm sure you guys have seen all these stories that have come out about these mass graves that they found at these Catholic schools um, mm-hmm. you know, in Canada. But that, that's been happening all over the world. And it happened at a, on a really yeah. extreme level in Ireland. And uh, so I'm listening to a lot of first-person testimony. And what a lot of these victims we're talking about, you know, these victims that were being raped by Father Murphy at school is that that same Father Murphy would come have dinner with their family on a Friday night and give them benediction. Sociopaths are constantly looking for a way to bend other people's will to their own. And they will ingratiate and charm you in that Jeffrey Dahmer way in that Oh, God, I can't think of the other guy who everyone's like, oh, he was so good looking and so charming. Um, oh, Bundy. Uh, Bundy. 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 It's Ted Bundy, Bundy yeah. way. I mean, that is a conscious, calculated effort to protect themselves and also to connect themselves to their victims, right? It's not just about an alibi or about a cover story. It's about how can I give myself better and more effortless access to my victims, mm-hmm. And that these priests, the same priests that would have assaulted a child the day before, would come to that same home and talk to the family about the child in this very benevolent way. It's disgusting. It's disgusting, but it's pretty classic Mm -hmm. sociopathy. Um, yep. It's just that it's so startling because it was, you know, the world's father, right? It was. Yeah, this, you're, you abso- look, you're absolutely right. And we just concluded about a year ago what's called a royal commission into 
They called it institutional child abuse, but really 90% of it was in the Catholic Church. And as you say, it, you know, these were the ultimate trusted people, you know, people would give their children over to them because it's the local priest. And what could possibly go wrong, even in spite of the history of it? But it was always, oh, well, but not Father Smith. He wouldn't do that kind of thing. And so mm-hmm. the things that came out at this Royal Commission, people's jaws dropped. It's similar to I don't know what your high power, like a Senate inquiry is, where you get subpoenaed to go and you cannot lie. Like if you lie and you get caught, you are in prison forever. So the depth of it and the depravity and all of it, people were just shocked. But on the other hand, you're not because you know it goes on. As Dean was talking about these people, you know, you give your your family to the trust that you give over. You know, we were talking about Bill Cosby or Harvey Weinstein, where I don't know if it was an idea of trust, but there is this idea of, of a power hierarchy, but in a Catholic church sense, or in a, sometimes you're not thinking about it in terms of power, you think about it as a familial relationship, so that inherent trust is there. To bring up another rape situation, the whole situation with the Penn State football team with Sandusky. I got my MFA at Penn State. Mm-hmm. and. I took a picture with, not with Sandusky, I took a picture with Joe Pa. Uh-huh. And Joe Pa was, you know, Joe Paterno. The reason you called him Joe Pa was he is Penn State. Mm-hmm. He just walked around the, the campus. He was the nicest man. He really did a lot of good things, not just for the athletics, but for that town and for people's and young people's careers. However, there was the equivocation that went on. What do I stand to lose? How will mm-hmm. I be impacted because of what this guy was how doing? How will my legacy be affected? How will, how right? will my like, legacy forget, be affected? These, like you said earlier, forget, no, no consideration for how these children, how yeah. these children's lives are destroyed forever. But how personally am I going to be impacted? Mm-hmm. And what's so crazy about it is the whole thing about Penn State is, uh, and I'm sure people will come online and drag me, you don't know, whatever else. But Pennsylvania is like, there are three population centers in the state. There's Pittsburgh, there's Philly, and there's State College. That's where like everything sits. When I tell you that that power structure of Penn State as a university, but especially Joe Paterno and that football team in that entire Happy Valley, Center County region is unmatched, I'm not being hyperbolic. It is that not program is like religion game. there. It's, it's him, religion. Him, his identity in that program, I have, I have family members that also went to Penn State. And so it's, a, it. it, it's a slavish devotion. Yeah, cult of personality all the way. And mm-hmm. what they used to do is, Aisha, to, to your point about uh, grooming, somebody mentioned grooming, but talking mm-hmm. about um, reaching out into the community. One of the mm-hmm. things that you felt like, a lot of people felt like they struck the lottery because outside of that area in Pennsylvania, much of the regions are financially impacted. They were heavy industry, coal towns, whatever else. A lot of that heavy industry has left. So if Joe Paterno and his assistant Sandusky came to your high school. It's not just, oh, they're going to come look at my kid for playing college football. It is all of us are being lifted out of poverty. So people were handing their kids over. And one of the stories is about Sandusky came because he was the one doing most of the recruiting in that area. And he was at a high school in the wrestling room, 830 at night with a young kid. And the, the wrestling coach or the coach happened to come in and was like, in his head, what the fuck you doing with a kid by yourself, 830 at night in the gym, asked him to leave and then asked him never to come back. And people were livid. Like, how could you do this? Because they all were like, it's Sandusky. Sandusky is an extension of Joe Paterno. Basically, you're fucking up our lottery ticket. Now all of this has come out. And the, the coach was like, I knew it was wrong. At the least, it was inappropriate. Like you're the thing you hope for best is that it was just, oh, it was just a misguided thinking. It's inappropriate. The worst case scenario is exactly what happened. It was a pipeline for him to, as you said, get put access. Put himself right in the middle right of stuff. access to a fresh and ongoing supply of victims. Yeah. And then obviously something like this calls to mind Michael Jackson. I was, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the idea that, again, this beautifully cultivated public image where people literally were giving their children over to him willfully and without concern for the safety of their kids. And he was having young children sleep over at his house with unsupervised. And I remember, I'm sure we all remember the second trial, the one that was up uh, like in Santa Barbara and his maid said, I saw him multiple times in the nude with young children and he was still acquitted. Well, that's the Um, power on the juries too, right? That's the power of the grooming. 
you know, when you have. Mm-hmm. And you know, these, these families, I mean, I remember, I don't know if you guys watched the movie Neverland and it wasn't Wade Robson's, it was us for the Australian kid. And the mom, there was that conversation that she had with him where she was like, have you forgiven me? He was like, I, I don't know. Because yeah. literally, you know, oh, forgiven the, the, the child, the, forgiven the mother, the child, forgiven his mother for taking him over there and leaving him mm-hmm. alone with Michael Jackson, with just assumption that it's Michael Jackson. What could right. go wrong? Right. Let me tell you, I walk to the convenience store with my son. When people come over, he's so cute. I like this. I don't, I, I, I don't know you like that. I don't know you like that. We'll talk and I'll let him, but I'm right there. Like, come on. And I'm not blaming the parents in that way. I'm just saying that maybe because I'm a new dad or I'm dumb or what have you, but it's, uh, or maybe I don't want my wife mad at me. Right, right, right. I mean, I think you socialize. We have to change the way we socialize boys. We have to change, and not, not just not to rape, but also if you are around that kind of behavior to speak up, right? Mm-hmm. That the moral thing to do is to speak up. And then we also have to destigmatize the way that we treat victims so that victims feel like they can come forward and they will be believed. Because the fact of the matter is that false reports of rape are extraordinarily rare. And for every woman that comes or a man that comes forward, there are thousands that will never report their rape. Absolutely. Right. Not hundreds, the, thousands. That you will took never the words come. right out of my mouth that, that people like to lean back on that BS argument of, well, you know that women lie. It's Fine. extraordinarily rare. It's I mean, rare. it's like 0.00001% of reported rapes are false reports. My, and it would probably my, be even less than that because of all the unreported rape. Right. We will never hear about right, people right. that have been victims of multiple sexual assaults and never come forward. Uh, there are people in my own life that I know that have been assaulted and have never come forward and reported it criminally or came forward to their family. And the family didn't believe them. And so they never took it any further than that. I mean, look what happened to the women in the Cosby case, just rounding it out. They were vilified to this day. What mom wouldn't want her daughter to audition for Bill Cosby, right? If you're talking, we were talking about Michael Jackson. Of course, you would feel safe sending her to one of those casting calls. But I want to point out that when he drugged these women, he left them. I mean, he would sometimes have his people put an unconscious woman back in her car. She's right. It's an episode. It is an episode of Criminal Minds. You know. There's an investigative reporter named Nikki Egan. She's followed this case forever. You should read her book, Chasing Cosby. She is skirting around the issue that how many women who were found overdosed or who crashed their cars or could have been victimized this way. I mean, you just don't know. The other thing I wanted to say is casting couch is my nemesis term because it's usually never casting directors who are using (laughs) casting couch. And there's nobody, I mean, other than children, there's nobody who I'm more protective of than actors. And to see people Mm -hmm. leveraging that in any way is such a is so fucked up to me and it, it drives me insane. But you know, the other thing is like, I feel like Harvey Weinstein constantly used that pitch, right? Like, well, so did Cosby and they were all yeah. really false promises. I would wager that he would always say to women, Harvey Weinstein, what do, this is how it's done. Yeah. Right. This is how everybody in Hollywood gets a role. You know, you sleep with me, but he never paid any of that. Right. Like that was yeah. just <clears throat> a lie in and of itself. You know, that one of those women benefited from being around that creep, that utter, utter inveterate creep. Well, let's turn to happier things, shall we? Thank Happy, you so much happiness. for uh, a bit. Uh, tell me what you guys are up to. Aisha's been directing up a storm. She, I know she um, directed some Walking Dead episodes. Tell me what you've been up to, both of you. Uh, I've been really fortunate to be just directing nonstop and I uh, have been directing in um, The Walking Dead world. Yeah, I just directed an episode of Fear the Walking Dead. I'm getting ready to leave the country to direct a feature um, the one that, that I was talking about that focuses on the, on the Catholic Church scandal. And so I'm going to be doing that for the rest of the fall, which is great. And our Archer season 12 is about to launch hey, <laughs> in Archer. about a month. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think we just finished season nine of Who's Line. I'm voicing a character on the, the spinoff of Monsters, Inc. called Monsters at Work uh, on Disney+. Plus. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And then I have a cocktail company called Courage and Stone. Uh, which is their premium foolproof ready to drink cocktails that you can have delivered directly to your home. And all you have to do is open the bottle and pour it in a glass. That is the effort that you have to make to enjoy nice. a lovely premium <laughs> cocktail. No mixing, no mess, no recipes. Uh, what kind of cocktails are they? They're like old fashioned. So we launched, yeah, we launched with an old fashioned and a Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And um, they're both very delicious. 
Uh, and then we're going to be launching with two additional flavors um, in the beginning of 2022. And I'm one of the only women of color in the spirit industry, period. So it's nice to be breaking some new ground. And our products are uh, all natural, small batch spirits, whole foods compliant. So no garbage, no stabilizers, no corn syrup, just the kinds of ingredients you would use if you made these cocktails at home, which you won't do because you have other stuff to do besides make cocktails. You must <laughs> pour yourself a drink and then sit down and watch television. So. That's right. <laughs> in the time it's of a COVID. turkey solution for Netflix and chill. <laughs> Great. Well, we're gonna, we'll put a link to that wonderful beverage uh, in our show notes. And Curtainstone.com. Uh, awesome. Very easy to find. Jarvis, what's up with you? I know that you have some things in development. Hopefully you'll hire me to cast. Because mama needs oh, to you know, I, I got you. I got you. I tell you, we talked about I got you on the list. Yeah. Just the natural progression of started writing, uh, wrote a pilot and it's uh, in the development phase. It's going really well. So fingers crossed. I'm working with my brother, Jason George. We have a couple of projects that we've put together, options from graphic novels. Very, very happy about them featuring BIPOC peoples. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love the, the clap about it because whenever I, I say, you know, we're featuring uh, a BIPOC peoples, people go, oh, thank God, you're doing stuff that everybody's in it. And I'm like, yeah, because everybody's in my life. Everybody needs to be in my show. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I stopped um, using inclusive and I started using representative because it's, it's like I would just like to make stuff that actually looks like the real world. Right. 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 And it's funny to segue just a little bit. I always used to get burned because I'm a comic book geek, comic book and sci-fi geek, Marvel guy, long comics, 5,000, me and my brother collected. And when you have conversations about the idea of representation, the retort would always be, well, you know, there were black characters. You know, there was Luke Cage. There was this character and there was that character. And I'm saying this goes way back when you go, okay, so the guy that you're referencing to me is a model of black exploitation who runs around and punches things. But that's the guy you want to see. But I want to see the guy from Wakanda who is the wealthiest man on the planet. He's brilliant. He has all these skills. And they're like, yeah, but he's not as cool. And I'm like, you know, you're telegraphing to me what you really think, right? I know you, I know you see it as just your personal druthers. I like Luke Cage too, but you're really telling me where I stand in this hierarchy. And in, in genre, I always wanted to just see it's not enough to just be there. You need to be not just represented, but you need to have depth of character that is A, a real three-dimensional person and B, a storyline we care about. You know, I'm re-binging Walking Dead as we speak and I had forgotten just how badass Michonne was, Denai Guerrero, when she first appears on the show. And I went, she was not meant to be the most popular character. We're supposed to care. She about. is the most popular character in the. But she books. is the most popular. In the, in the in the books, she was. I mean, in the book, like I I mean, I'm a big huge comic book geek too, and I had read all the books before. Oh yeah. And I remember when they were when they were bringing the show on, I was losing my mind. I really wanted that role. Because <laughs> <laughs> the way like, that she's in the book, she's walking through the wasteland with double swords and the two like she's cut the jaws off of two. The jaws and the arms off. Yeah, her. that's so great. It might be a little subversive on Kirkman's part to say, you know what, if I introduced her as the lead at the time he made that comic, it probably might not have gotten bought or published, but say, you know what, this badass character who, who should be what the show was about, ultimately, her survivor mentality and her brilliance, let me bring her in in the baddest way possible so that people have no choice but to acknowledge her greatness. Mm. And I went, yeah, now I want the show to be about her. I will, or, you know, that character. Like, I feel the same way about Furiosa in the Road Warrior reboot. Yeah. I love the Road Warrior. I love oh, Tom man. Hardy. Incredible. I was like, I need Charlize Theron. What's going on? Like, mm-hmm. I need Furiosa in my life, that sort of thing. And that, <laughs> we're, moving, we're moving into that world now where, I mean, creators have done it, but people who greenlight projects, people who finance projects, ultimately are people who also hedge their bets on risk and they're risk averse. And they always wet the bed about, no, I don't know. Will we make as much money or are we going to get backlash? Fucking do it and let the chips fall where they may. Because you fucking made Attack of the Killer Tomato. Y'all weren't risk averse about that shit. Now you're going to tell me you don't want to have a black lead or an indigenous lead or, or what have you. And then, of course, when those things happen and the world's still spinning and people made a billion dollars and there's merch and there's commercials and people are on the cover of the magazines, they go, oh, we can do this. 
So that's where long round, long <laughs> winded way of saying that's where me and my brother are with our projects. Everybody's represented, as Aisha said, but really putting BIPOC peoples and people who've been marginalized as forefront of the story, still engaging popcorn, crowd pleasing entertainment, but that is socially relevant. We, we like to say our projects are a mix of uh, participant media who did like Syriana and things of that nature with aliens. Like we, you know, <laughs> give me, give me Sigourney Weaver. Oh my God. Kicking ass. But there's a real world social component to the work. So that's what we're in right now. I've recurred on uh, Dave of late uh, doing that show with Lil Dicky. That's been a hell of an experience, man, because I'm not old. But you feel old when right? people, people who are younger than you have done all this work and then they come up to you go, oh, my God, oh, my God, I saw you on Dave. Oh, my God, you were with Lil Dicky. And you could be like, yeah, but I played Malcolm X or <laughs> <laughs> I played Hamlet, you know, and they're like, I don't know what the fuck that is. Yeah, right. Oh my God. <laughs> but you were with Little Dicky, you know. Yeah. Jarvis, just before we get too far away from it, for the listeners in Australia who would be like me, and I have to display my ignorance, and hopefully I'm not the only one down here, I have to ask I'm not familiar with the term BIPOC. What oh. is that? Oh, I've never black, heard of that. Thanks, Black for Indigenous me. people. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Like I tell my students, I don't know is a good thing, it lets you know something is absent. And then you yep. figure it out. We'll work it out. Black indigenous it's very much a, people a North color. American term, I think. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Say it again. We, we, we love our, we're like the military. We love our acronyms. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll give you an acronym in a minute. Say it no, again that's good. clean, Jarvis, because I don't think we got it out clean. So say what BIPOC stands for. Oh, um, BIPOC stands for Black Indigenous People of Color. So instead of having to give all the multi-hyphenates and people feeling left out because I'm this nationality or I'm this gender or on this region or what have you just BIPOC. Uh -oh. Okay, cool. Not it's white. In other yep, words, not it. white. Thank you. <laughs> right. Um, oh my God, you guys, we could talk forever. It's so good to see you. I just can't wait to work with you guys again. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it. I worked on the pilot with Taika TV for Reservation Dogs that's coming out on FX. So I hope that you will check that out. But um, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I can't wait to see what the next thing you do and work with you again. And I so appreciate your time. And I'm going to go out and crack open a Courage and Stone beverage and uh, read a comic book in your honor. <laughs> um, I'm serious about that. I'm, I'm going to hit you up and figure out how we can yeah. <laughs> talk about the, the Courage and Stone, man. That'd be awesome. All right. Oh, well, for now, these are, I just can't say goodbye to these faces, but I guess I have to. Thank you, Brian and Dean. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you, Jarvis. And for now, this is Killer Casting signing out. Killer Casting is a concept created and produced by Lisa Zambetti. Audio engineering by Dean Laffin. Logo art by April Laffin. Website and Big Fat Opinions courtesy of me, Brian Allen Hill.